If you have a Bible, you can open up to Judges. Judges, we are in chapter 8 today. So uh, if you're not sh- sure where that is, look in the uh, beginning of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. That's where we'll be. Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. We're looking at the third chapter on Gideon. This is really kind of part three of Gideon as we're looking at him. And so uh, we'll be finishing Gideon and the next week we'll start up with Abimelech, his son, uh, and kind of continually see the downward spiral of, of the book of Judges. So um, if you haven't been here, I'll give you a little bit of a review of what's been going on here as we've been looking at the, this, this character Gideon in chapter 6 and 7, and then we'll read the text. Uh, we're going to look at all of chapter 8, but we're just going to read one little section, and then we'll pray and, and uh, we'll go through the chapter. So uh, in the book of Judges, if you're not familiar with it, basically this is before they have kings, um, but after they've come out of, after they've come out of slavery in Egypt and they've uh, come into the promised land and God's told them as you come into the promised land, there's lots of Canaanites here and you need to just get rid of them all. Don't leave any of them here. Get rid of them all. And by getting rid of them all, uh, you won't have any, any sinful people around you that will pull you over or tempt you over to be a part of their sinful things. Don't marry with them. Um, don't make them your slaves. Don't do anything. Get rid of all of them. And so uh, we, we've, going, we've been going through this book in the process of how Israelites haven't been obedient to that. In some measure or fashion, they're okay with having these people left there, the Canaanites. And here we're going to, these are the Midianites. Uh, and, and eventually... Uh, they don't like being oppressed. So the kind of the cycle is uh, the people don't listen to God and they rebel and they're founding themselves in constant rebellion and sin. And God in his anger leaves the oppressors there. And for here it's the Midianites. The Midianites came in and oppressed them. And as they were oppressed, uh, there's usually after being oppressed for some measure of time. Here it's for seven years. Israel's oppressed by the Midianites. The Israelites would get tired of it and they'll cry out to God. God, we're tired of this. Help us, save us, etc. And so there's some level of crying out to God or some level of repentance. This one's different than some of the others. Probably not as heartfelt as some of the others. God will, in his mercy, uh, send a judge or send a rescuer to them. And here it's Gideon. He sends, uh, and after that, after that happens, the, the rescuer rescues Israel away from their oppressors here. Gideon um, is going to rescue the people away from the Midianites. And there'll be some level of peace brought to the land. Uh, each, as you, as you go through the book, it it's deteriorates. Uh, and as you go through the, bi- the book of Judges, the people of Israel get worse and worse and worse. They call it the downward spiral of depravity. The people of Israel get worse and worse. And as you go through the book of Judges, um, the judges themselves become uh, become less and less the kind of person you want to, would want to follow in their character. So we're, we're in chapter 6, 7, 8, and we're looking at Gideon. We're, we're into the judge, <clears throat> judges now, and we'll see the, the uh, bad decision-making of Gideon here. So uh, if you would, let's stand and read together. We're in chapter 8. I'm just going to read verses 22 through 28. Uh, that's all we're going to read out loud. We'll, we'll go over the entire chapter. After I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And so, of course, you're saying thanks to God that he would be so kind as to give us his word. But also, uh, you're, in a similar way, you're saying, Lord, the things that I hear, the things that you teach me, Holy Spirit, the things that you show me, I want to be obedient to those things. I want to take those things to heart and apply them to my life. So starting at verse 22. 
The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from a spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak down, and every man threw his earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he had requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in a city in Orpha. And all Israel whored after it, and, became a, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his entire family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for um, raising up this rescuer Gideon that gives us um, a lot that we can learn about who you are, about Jesus, about uh, making sure that our entire life is devoted to you, that we think through what it means to be a follower of Christ and that it means our whole life. And I pray that all of us, as we see this, would certainly uh, think through all the challenges and think through all of the cautions that it brings as we look at this text. But ultimately, God, we won't just make adjustments in our life, but instead we'll see our absolute need for Jesus and that where Gideon, as a rescuer, Um, for the people of Israel ultimately uh, lets them down that you, Jesus, as our rescuer, never do. And that you have willingly, as a king, uh, given your life so that we can have eternal life. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we're looking at Gideon, um, we've we've noticed uh, a little bit about him. So I want to do a little bit of a review so we can see why this third chapter of Gideon, chapter 6, 7, 8, will be helpful for us. So uh, Gideon was one of the rescuers that was raised up by God. Uh, They had been oppressed for seven years. You can see that in chapter 6, verse 1. And God sent a prophet to them to try to get them to repent of of their sin. There's no... There's no indication that repentance happened, uh, but the Lord in his mercy still sent them a rescuer anyway. He sent Gideon. And so whenever he goes to Gideon to call Gideon, he tells him that the Lord's with you and you're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon takes issue with both of them. It doesn't seem like you're really with us, God, because all these bad things. And I don't really feel like I'm a, a mighty man of valor. I'm, I'm one of the weakest people here and out of the weakest tribe. And the Lord's like, it's okay. You don't need really anything. You just need me. As long as you have me, everything will be all right because he's the Lord. He's Yahweh. Everything will be fine. And so Gideon is unsure. He needs reassurance. And so he asks for several signs that the Lord can prove that he's strong enough, that he can prove that he can do these things. Certainly that's faithless. But nevertheless, the Lord in his mercy and kindness uh, reassures him and helps his faith become better. And so that's what we see in chapter six. And then as we go into chapter seven, it's time for the battle. It's time to go defeat the Midianites. And the Lord knows the hearts of Israel. And he knows that if they defeat, um, if they defeat the Midianites with, with a, a, a valiant army and in, in a, in a fight in, in battle, then the people of Israel will say, well, it was us. We did it. Look how awesome we are. As a matter of fact, it says in chapter seven, verse two, that Israel will boast over me saying, my own hand saved me. If 
We go to war with the 32,000 troops that we have. And so God knows their hearts and knows that that's not good and doesn't want them to take any kind of pleasure in thinking that they did it. And so God says, you have too many people. This 32,000 people that you have is way too many troops. So what I want you to do is whittle them down as they go through a whittling process and we get to 300 people. All right, now these 300 people, they're going to go fight against the 120,000 Midianites. And so obviously 300 versus 120,000. If you win, you know that you didn't do anything, that God did it. And they don't even take swords. As a matter of fact, they just stand outside their camp and they blow horns and wave torches in the air. And all the Midianites fight against themselves. And then it concludes in the chapter by saying, it's clear that the Lord did this. That, and so God erases any and all hope of, the, of, of, of Israel and Gideon to be able to say, I did it. So there's literally no way they can brag, no way they can boast because 300 men blew trumpets. You took the marching band out there basically and you defeated them. So like, there's no way that they can actually say they did it. Uh, And so whenever that happens, we concluded chapter seven, knowing that happened. I'm not against marching bands. I think they're awesome. Um, So uh, verse verse 23, we see here as we're finishing the chapter where they just, uh, they just, Blew the, blew the horns. They fight against each other. Of course, there's a little bit of the Midianites left. And so they flee. And so Israel, um, Gideon and his armies are going to go try to finish off the last people that are left. And we see in verse 23 of chapter 7 that it says, And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh. Now remember, they were at 32,000. They whittled them down to 300. They go over and they do that. And so they just have these 300. And then as soon as all of it happens, Gideon, instead of taking those 300, goes over to three tribes and says, Hey, come help us. I think we're going to get this. And so he calls out to these particular three tribes, Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh. He doesn't call out to Ephraim, which we're going to see in just a minute in chapter eight, uh, Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim takes issue with that. Ephraim was the, was the strongest tribe in Israel at the particular time. And they're like, why would you call us out? We're the strongest. Um, so they're going to take a little bit of issue, but, uh, whenever they didn't call out Ephraim, we're going to see at the end of chapter seven, Ephraim still plays a part. Ephraim still does some stuff in verse 24. Um, he's going to call them out in a different way. Gideon sent messengers. He didn't call them out, uh, in, in 23 with, with what's going on. Um, against the camp, but he does do this. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barba and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barba and they also, also the Jordan. It says here that they captured the two princes of Midian. So the Midianites who were oppressing them had two kings. Uh, we're going to see them in just a sec- second. They're Zelna and Zamuna or something like that. They have two princes also that will take over as the kings and their names are Oreb and Zeb. Ephraim, uh, this tribe in Israel that's the strongest, gets these two princes, Oreb and Zeb, and it says they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. Now that's ironic, right? Don't go to the rock if, they're gonna, if you're gonna die at the rock of Oreb. You know your downfall's coming. It's, obviously, I'm kidding. Um, they named it because he was died there. And they killed Zeb at the wine press of Zeb. And so as they accused, uh, as they pursued the Midianites, they bought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now, one little thing as we conclude chapter seven, we can see this. We can see this kind of circular, beautiful circularity of God's faithfulness where Gideon is hiding in the wine press in chapter six because the Midianites were stealing all their stuff and it's at a wine press that one of the princes was killed. And in order to prove that God reassures him, he says, put your stuff on the rock and I'll destroy it. And then at the rock of 
of uh, Oreb, he they killed these two. They killed these two princes, and so uh, kind of this beautiful secu- circularity of the faithfulness of God is: you're hiding around in a in a wine press, and at a rock I show my faithfulness, and at a wine press, and at a rock are we the ones where we see these two particular um, princes killed? Now that. That helps us get into chapter 8 where we're going to see this kind of downfall of Gideon. Now, thus far uh, in chapter 6 and 7, Gideon's kind of been held up as a rescuer and somebody to look to. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 11 and what's called the Hall of Faith where they list out all the people that were faithful, even Hebrews 11 says Gideon is among those people who had faith. And that happens um, as we're looking in chapter 7. When we get to chapter 8, we're actually going to see a downfall of Gideon, the close of his life is not good, which brings us to the, the title of this particular sermon. So as we're coming to the title of this particular sermon uh, of chapter 8, it's called Gideon's Downfall in Judges chapter 8. And so the reason why this is important and the reason why we would want to talk about Gideon's downfall is this. Everybody in our church is young. Um, even if you're in your 40s and 50s, that's still young because now we're living into our 90s. And the church itself, we're only nine years old, is young. We're all young. And so since we are all young people and since our church is young, this particular chapter will serve for us as a caution not to pursue Jesus just in our high school years or just in our college years or just in our young adult years whenever we have kids and we want them to know Jesus, but instead to serve Jesus our entire life. That God calls us to serve him, adore him, worship him, love him, and follow him, not just for those first parts of our lives, whenever we know it's crucial and we know it's important, but the end of our lives as well. And Gideon is not going to do that. Gideon, at the end of his life, is going to have a downfall, and it serves for a great caution for us. And so we're going to see, as we go through chapter 8, what does a spiritual downfall look like? What does it look like? We're going to see four different things here that bring on a spiritual downfall. And all four of these things should bring caution to our lives. We should examine our hearts even at our ages now to see if these things are taking place in our lives so that we don't have a spiritual downfall one day in our life. But instead, we follow and persevere and serve Jesus with our entire life. Gideon shows us what not to do. Gideon shows us what not to do. Chapter 8 Verses 1 through 3, we can see one of the first things that he's going to do. Remember, Ephraim's really strong. Um, and so they're going to come up here and they're going to confront him and say, Hey, Ephraim's going to say, Hey, Gideon, you know, whenever you fought against the Midianites at the camp, why didn't you call us out? We're the strongest. And you can see it in verse, chapter 8, verse 1. The men of Ephraim said to him, What is it you have done not to call us out when you fought against Midian? And they accused him fiercely, saying to him, uh, What have I done now? In comp- and so this is what Gideon says back. What have I done now in comparison to you? So, in in other words, we blew horns and they killed each other. (laughs) We didn't really do anything. You, Ephraim, you actually captured their princes and cut their heads off. I mean, so if we're talking like who actually did stuff, I blew a trumpet, you got out swords and killed and and chopped off heads. So, Ephraim, you're the ones that actually did something. He's he's, um, using diplomacy to try to... um, Bring down the situation because they're, they're, as it says, you can see they're, they're confronting him fiercely and accusing him fiercely. And he's wanting to, to diffuse the situation quickly. So he's like, what have I done? What have I done in comparison to you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of a beezer? Like we're a beezer, we're a low tribe. You're awesome. We're, we don't have anything compared to you. God's given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So 
Gideon employs a gift that he has of, of diplomacy, and he uses this gift to diffuse their anger against him. And you can say, well, that's good. Hey, that's a good thing. Why are you saying Gideon's downfall? I would say, as we continue through the chapter, and we'll see this, that what Gideon's actually doing is using this gift of speech that he has for diplomacy, uh, not for really Christ-exalting diffusion of the situation, but instead he's using it for personal gain and personal profit and personal preservation. Because in just a second, when he goes against two other cities, Sukkoth and Penuel, who are weaker than him, again, Ephraim's the strongest. So when they get strong at him and they bow up, he's got to be like, you're right, look what you've done, look what I've done. I mean, you're stronger than me, I haven't, uh, you're right. But when he goes against these other cities and they don't help him and they're weaker than him, he doesn't show deference to them like he does to Ephraim. But instead, he's very vindictive. He's very vindictive. We'll see that in a second. So there's not an ongoing pattern of wanting to show deference to whoever it is. So it's, it's kind of like whenever, if, if you're around somebody that's super strong and super powerful and has lots of stuff, you're like, hey, you're awesome, whatever. But then if you're around somebody that doesn't have these things and you're mean to them and you show your power, that's what he's talking about. You should be the same to everybody. So here, the first way that we can see a downfall, oh, it's up there, good. He uses the gift of speech, which is what he has. So if you don't have the gift of speech, you can say, check. You, you might say, check, not me. <laughs> I can't have a spiritual downfall. I don't have the gift of speech. All right, plug in your, your gift. You all have one. You use whatever gift you have, not for God's glory, but for your own personal gain, your own personal preservation, your own personal profit. That's downfall. That's what he's doing here. He's using his gift to make himself um, look good in their eyes. Now, there are some positive things about the diplomacy he uses. He minimizes his, his role in comparison to theirs. We blew horns, you chopped off heads. He flatters them like, hey, you've got better, you know, you've got better grapes than us. You, know, you might not use that today uh, whenever you want to flatter someone, but they did then. Hey, your grapes are great. Mine stink. Um, like another thing are, uh, he tells them that God, look what God's done. You, you got Oreb and Zeb. We didn't get to do something like that. And then he even minimizes his role a second time. So he, he does have some positive things about his diplomacy, but in a negative sense, um, he does not even mention uh, that uh, God is the one that did these things. He doesn't mention his divine call to them. He doesn't say to them, you know what? Uh, God called me to take these 300 people to defeat them, not you. So he, he doesn't list out the theological reasons in, at all in his diplomacy. He only lists out basically psychological reasons to them. Hey, you're awesome and you've got good grapes and you've got Dorb and Zeb. So he doesn't talk anything theological with them whatsoever. So these are the negative kind of traits of the diplomacy. He doesn't even mention the call of God. I mean, it's a pretty huge thing in chapter six and seven that said Gideon was called by God to go do this. It would have been great for him to say to his own fellow kinsmen who should, you know, believe in Yahweh, God called me to do it. I had to obey. I don't know why he didn't call Ephraim. He didn't say that. So he uses his own personal gift of speech and diplomacy for his own personal agenda. And we should not do that. And we certainly can fall prey to that. To take our own gifts and instead of using them for the entirety of our lives to glorify Jesus. We might start out strong and then take those gifts that we have to also have some personal gain from it. Some personal preservation and things like that. That's what a spiritual downfall looks like. It can be subtle. It can be very subtle. The second thing we see is this. Let's go ahead and put up number two. In 4 through 21, we see a second thing he does. Where what he perceives to be the Lord's work, 
He does what he perceives of the Lord's work without actually seeking the Lord. Now, over and over, we can see where people hear from the Lord, they go do something, and then after they do that, that first thing, they think they just got a lifeline. And it, over and over, we'll see in the text, there's no mention that they kept seeking the Lord. And then we'll see the pattern of what they do. And it's actually not what the Lord would want. The difference in the two texts as we read is before they used to seek the Lord, should we do it? And now they keep doing stuff and we just assume they're still seeking the Lord, but there's no mention of that. And then they're doing, they're doing bad things. And that's what's going on here. We have him thinking he's doing the Lord's work, but the text doesn't mention at all that he's sought the Lord. What should I do? Should I do this? Not mentioning there. And so whenever he does that, he thinks he's doing the Lord's work, but he's not. He's actually just doing his own. And we're going to see three examples of what that tangibly looks like. And we should notice um, that there's a, a, if you take chapter 7, chapter 6 and 7 even, and juxtapose it to chapter 8, there is a clear um, absence of the mentioning of the Lord directing Gideon. Chapter 6 and 7, we read it, the Lord directed, the Lord did this, the Lord did that. Now it mentions the Lord in chapter 8, but what we don't see in chapter 8 is the Lord guided Gideon to do. We don't see that where we can see those things happening in chapter six and seven. So here we see Gideon, what he perceives as the Lord's work, but he's, he's downfall and he doesn't see it. He's become um, hard-hearted. And so he, seek, he, he thinks he's doing the Lord's work, but really he's not. He's not actually seeking the Lord. And it takes, uh, it takes um, shape in three different ways. We'll see it right here, starting at verse four. The first one we'll see is that he becomes vindictive. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men that were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. And he said to these men, to these two cities, these are the two cities that I said were weak. Watch what he does. He goes to, first to Sukkoth and he says, hey, give us some food. For, give us the loaves of bread and people who are following me. They're exhausted and we're pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna. Those are the kings. They've already got Oreb and Zeb, the princes. Now they're going after the kings. We'll just call them the two Zs. They're coming after the two Zs, the kings of Midian. And the officials at Sukkoth, they, they get a little snarky and they say, oh, do you have the two Z's already in your hand? Because if you do, then we'll feed you. Oh, you don't have them? No, we're not giving you food. That's, so that's, that's certainly not good. And Gideon, um, instead of hearing this, gets upset. And he says this in verse 7. Well then, when the Lord has given the two Z's into my hand, I'm going to come back and flail your flesh with the thorns in the wilderness of the briars. I'm going to whip you. Till you bleed with thorns and briars. That's pretty hard-hearted. That's amazingly hard-hearted. And from there, he left hungry to go to the next city, Penuel, and look what happens. Same thing. He spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the man of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to them, when I come back again in peace, I'm going to break down this tower. They had this large tower. They could kind of watch and see if people were coming. He's like, you see a little watchtower? I'm going to knock the whole thing over if you're not going to help me. And he leaves. Now, what we see here then is a vindictive heart. And so whenever we have someone, all right, we're singing some songs here. Oh, all right. So can you go back to point number two for me? Can we go back to point number two? What does a spiritual downfall looks like? Um, when he proceeds to the Lord work, but he's not seeking the Lord. Without God, without seeking the Lord, one forms a vindictive heart. That's what he's going to do to the people of Sukkoth and Penuel. He's going to form a, a vindictive heart against them. Whenever you think you're doing the Lord's work and you're not constantly seeking the Lord, your heart shifts over. So what does a spiritual downfall look like? Look like? It looks like 
becoming vindictive. No, notice what happens. He goes and he does get Zeba and Zalmunna. He finds the two Zs. So now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karko and their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left. I'm in verse 10. Uh, the people of the east, for they had fallen 120. They drew the sword and Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba, Jogaba, and attacked the army for the um, army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw the army into panic. So he, got, he gets them, basically, was what, we, what we're gathering. He gets the two kings. Now this is what happens. Gideon, the son of Joshua, turned back from the battle and he captured the young men. So he brings the two two Z's with him back to Sukkoth and back to Penuel and watch this vindictiveness. Watch this evil depravity take place and a downfall of a man who used to be used by God. He goes and he goes back to him and he captured the young men of Sukkoth and questioned them and he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, some 77 men. So he gets the list of the men who were the officials that said, we won't feed you. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and he, he said, behold, I've got the two Z's about whom you taunted me and saying, do you have the hands of Zeba and Zalnu already in your hand that we should give bread? And we're exhausted. And he took those elders, those 77 men, and he took the thorns in the wilderness and briars. And with them, he taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. He whips them with these thorns and briars, these 77 men, for not feeding him. It gets worse in Penuel. Notice what he does in Penuel. And then after he that, he went down to the tower of Penuel. He knocked it over and killed the men of the city. All the men of Penuel, he killed them. Now, these are not the Canaanites that they, he was told to kill. These are his fellow Israelites that he's killing. And we see this vindictive, horrific heart. His poor character now is showing and Gideon is out of control. This is vindictive. You don't, you don't do this. The Lord certainly is not telling him to kill his own fellow kinsmen. Not telling him to kill fellow Israelites and whip them with briars. And so what does a spiritual downfall look like? When you think you're doing the Lord's work and you're not actually seeking the Lord, you get vindictive. So if we're going to apply that to your own life, Watch the way you treat your family. This is, his fel- this is his family. Watch the way as you're continuing. Are you vindictive back towards your family whenever they don't love you and whenever they don't serve you? Whenever you're growing old, you think you're doing the Lord's work and he comes back. Are you being vindictive to them when they don't do the things you want? Are you loving them and, ki- and are, are you kindly um, shepherding them through whatever situation you're going through? Here we see his own family People of Israel, he's been vindictive too. So a great application for us is to think the people closest to me should be the ones that I'm not vindictive to. I should be vindictive to anybody. But the people closest to me, certainly, I should love them and care for them. The next thing we see that he does is not only uh, does these, in 2A we see a vindictive heart. The second thing we see is poor judgment. You can go ahead and put that up. 2B, another example is without God, poor judgment accompanies self-leading. So he's not being led by God. He's self-leading himself. And when you have self-leading, poor judgment. Watch this awful thing he does. Verse 18, he said to Zeba, the two Zs, uh, where are the men that you killed at Tabor? And they said, as you are, so were they. And every one of them resembled the son of a king. So basically they're saying, um, they're trying to flatter Gideon. There's, he's saying, where are the men you killed at Tabor? And they look, looking at him and said, well, they were actually pretty awesome men like you. They look like kings and Gideon. You look like a king. You act like a king. They're trying to flatter him, right? And this is actually one of the first mentionings in the Old Testament of any kind of kings that would happen. And probably the reason why in verse 22 and 23, people of Israel ask Gideon to be their king. And he's like, no. Um, but nevertheless, they say, you look like a king, Gideon. They're trying, to, he's trying, they're trying to flatter him. And he said to him, they were my brothers, those people you killed, the sons of my mother, as the Lord lives. If you had saved them, I would not kill you. 
Now you can say, is that true? All these men were his brothers? I think so. Um, I don't think he just means like they're fellow Israelites with me. I think he actually means those men you killed were my brothers. We see at the end of this chapter that Gideon himself has 70 sons with many wives. So probably it ran in the family that he actually had a bunch of brothers upwards into that. And he's like, those men you killed were my actual flesh and blood brothers. And if you had spared them, I would spare you, but I'm not going to, I'm going to kill you. And here's where it gets bad. Here's where the poor judgment comes in. One of the worst things that can happen for these kings, these Midianites, these people that rule over is to not be killed valiantly, not to be killed in a great way, but instead to be killed in absolute humility. And so to be killed by a little boy as a king is just the worst. It would be absolutely humiliating. And so um, Gideon gets his son, his little boy son, to, to come kill him. He asks his little boy son. It doesn't happen. Watch what happens here. And he said, I wouldn't kill you. So he said to Jethro, his firstborn son, rise and kill him. But the young man did not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a young man. So Gideon uh, tries to get his own son to do his dirty work. And that's where you see the poor judgment coming. That he's trying to humiliate the kings by getting them to die at the hands of a, of a mere boy in their minds. But uh, it's not going to happen. And he doesn't do it. But nevertheless, we see poor judgment trying to get your son to do the thing that you really you're supposed to be doing just to try to humiliate them. So again, it's the reason why is because he's being vindictive. He's not necessarily carrying out the work of the Lord here on the two Z's or he would have just immediately done it himself. He wants to humiliate them. He wants to be vindictive. That's why he's like, son, go kill him. And he won't. And he's like, fine, I'll do it. And so he does it. Uh, and it says, uh, he didn't do it in verse 21. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man, so is his strength. And Gideon rose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks and in their camels. Now, Tim Keller, as he's looking at this particular problem here, what he's seeing, and I think he's right, is Gideon has become addicted to and dependent upon his success. This downfall he's going, he's having, is because he is addicted to success and dependent upon success and addicted to looking great in front of people instead of worshiping Jesus and following what God wants. And he has this insight for us all. He, he explains to us, if that's you, the real danger of being addicted to success. He says, imagine a man who works extremely hard at his job because he needs to prove himself through financial success. What's the worst thing that can happen to this man who needs to prove himself through financial success? If you're thinking that's you, you can ask, what's the worst thing? He says, the obvious answer is career failure, of course. Someone who's basing their happiness and identity on their work will be devastated by career failure. They'll look like a failure in front of everybody and that will kill them, that will crush them. But at least, here's what happens though. Through the failure, they could stop idolizing their career advancement and they may realize that status and money and all that success will never fulfill me like Jesus. And he could repent. And so he says then, career failure isn't the worst thing. That's not the worst thing that can happen. For someone that's addicted to success, then he says this, no, instead of career failure being the worst thing, the worst thing that can happen to somebody who's addicted to success is career success. That's the worst thing because success will only confirm his, pre, his pre-confirmed idea that he actually can fulfill himself and control his own life and not God. And he will become more of a slave to success and money than if he had actually failed. He will feel proud and superior to others. And he will expect everybody around him to show deference and bowing to him and scraping from others. And so if that's your own heart, realize that career success 
is a real danger for you to always look great and continually be really good at it and never actually fail at it is a dangerous business. So if you are marching forward with a lot of advancements, realize the downfall will come where you'll start thinking you're doing the Lord's work, but you're seeking your own. You'll, you'll be vindictive. You'll have poor judgment, which leads us into our last thing that I want you to see. Now, I want to remind you in chapter 7. If you remember in chapter 7, uh, they came up to the camp. They had the 300 men. They came up to the camp of the Midianites, and they looked out there, and they just see all these people, and God's like, you're going to get them. You're going to do it. Get in. You can, you can beat them. And he's like, but if you're still scared, I'll tell you what. Get in. Take your, take your servant with you. Uh, and, and sneak into the camp. And when you sneak into the camp, you're going to run into these two Midianite soldiers having a conversation. They're comrades, so they were Russian. And as, they were, as they're discussing uh, what's going on, one's going to say to the other, I had this dream that bread rolled into our camp and knocked over the tents. And the other one's going to say, that means Gideon, the son of Joash, is going to destroy us all. <laughs> and so he goes in and he hears this dream. So he and his... his uh, his buddies sneak into the camp and they hear this. Behold, I had a dream. A cake of barley tumbled in the camp and it came and struck the tent and everybody turned upside down. And the comrade answered, that means Gideon's going to kill us all. God's given all of Midian to, into the hand of Gideon. So Gideon overhears this. And in 715, this is what it says. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to take 715 and what's going on in Gideon's heart and where he is spiritually and put it right up beside, contrast it with what's going on in chapter 8. Here's what happens in 7.15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of this dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He literally fell prostrate on the ground, face on the ground, in the enemy camp, and just worshiped Jesus. That is a man that's exactly where he's supposed to be spiritually, following the Lord. Where we are in chapter 8, we have a man not doing that. We have a man uh, beating his own fellow kinsmen, Showing diplomacy to the strong people just because he's trying to self-preserve. Um, show, telling his own son to do the work that he was assigned to do. And so the third thing we see is this. Without God, we worship ourselves and our success. In chapter seven fifteen, he's worshiping God properly. When we switch over to chapter 8 and we see what's going on in his life, he's worshiping himself. There's nothing else that we can do. He's taking himself and he's put himself on his own throne of his heart instead of God. He's become a self-worshipper instead of a God-worshipper. And then, to make it even worse, we get over to chapter, uh, uh, chapter 8, 22 through 28, and the people of Israel with their wayward hearts, fickle, half-hearted following hearts, see this, and they actually come to Gideon, and they say this in verse 22, Hey, Gideon, the men of Israel came to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. It's not too out of line to deduce that poor leadership of Gideon has brought the hearts of Israel to want Gideon to rule over them instead of God. It's not too hard to deduce that. If Gideon was leading them well, they wouldn't say, we want you to rule because God's already told them, I will rule over you. And who's going to do it better than God? Not Gideon, not any man. No one's going to be able. So it's not hard to deduce that poor leadership has actually brought him to this point. The, the downfall of Gideon's end of his life um, has brought them to this point to where just like the Midianites who have a human king, like the pagans, they want a human king. Now, he's going to give a good answer. There's no doubt about it. I don't think that that's actually what he believes, but he's going to give a good answer. I have reasons. 
But let's look at it. Verse 23. Then Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, if the chapter ended right there and Gideon died and they had rest, we would just be like, oh, Gideon, you came around. It's over. You were maybe not a disappointment, but that's not what happens. Now, you can say, but give him a break. Look what he said. He said, God's going to rule over them. And I would say this. By God's grace, for the sake of Israel, Gideon gives the right words to say here and preserves Israel for a time to ultimately led by God, not a human king for a time. But I don't believe that's really what Gideon wants in his heart. I believe he knew that to be true intellectually and said it out loud, but the truth of not had not yet gripped his heart that he actually does want to rule over them and be their king. And you can say, but Fudd, uh, he says he doesn't. He has these words. What about his words? And I would say, words are important. They are, without a doubt. But so are actions. And I have four reasons right after this, right after this that happens, that make me think intellectually he knew what's right and so he said it, but in his heart that's not what he wanted. Four reasons, right here. Um, Verse 23, by the way, will be the last Christ-honoring, God-exalting, remotely close thing that we'll see about Gideon saying anything. Right there. God will rule over you. Very good. And then immediately, I mean, the very next verse, Gideon says, let me make a request of you. (laughs) This is unbelievable. Um, Every one of you will give me the earnings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings. And they answered, we will willingly give them to you. And they spread a cloak on the ground, put a coat down. Everybody threw it in. Like a pagan king that wins a battle for his people demands payment for doing that. Like a king, that's what he does. So the first reason that I don't think that that's being true, immediately the first thing he does is he asks for financial remuneration for killing these people um, like kings do, and he becomes rich. That's what kings do, and he doesn't want to be a king. Second, you can see it in verse 26. And the weight of the golden rings that he requests was 1,700 shekels. And then he also gets these things, the crescent ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments. Purple in that day meant you know, kingly, royalty, right. And so he takes the Midianites, uh, pagan kingly things to become his own, demanding payment and taking the kingly things of the Midianites. That's two things that he's done. Second, the, the third thing is this ephod. Now this is really just more of a priestly thing and not a kingly thing, but this is what he does in verse 27. He made an ephod of it and put it, on his, and put it in his city in Orpha and all of Israel whored after it and became a snare to get into his family. So this idiot, this, uh, I'm sorry, this ephod, which is supposed to be only worn by priests, which I said, this is more of a priest thing, not a king thing. But according to Mosaic law, only one person should wear the ephod in Israel and it demonstrates to them uh, that they know the, it's kind of like the breastplate of judgment and it should only be one when someone's inquiring of God. And ultimately, uh, he's saying that he can be the man that does that and it becomes a huge snare in Israel and he leads them all to become idolaters by doing this thing. And so uh, Gideon's life here in chapter eight leads the people of Israel into idolatry. Now, Whenever we were looking in chapter six, I don't know if y'all remember, God told him to go burn down the Baal and the Asherah. Uh, like they have towers and stuff built to them in chapter six. And he says, I want you to go burn it down. Kill all the idolatry. And he's like a little nervous. So he goes at nighttime. He's like, I'll do it at nighttime. So nobody sees me. Well, we see that in chapter six. It says at that night, Gideon, uh, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal and, and burn it down. But watch what it says in seven twenty-five, six twenty-five, chapter six, verse 25. Notice what it says about Gideon's dad. Go pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. 
Gideon's dad was an idolater. And you know what happens to Gideon as he closes his life? He becomes an idolater and he leads the people of Israel to, to be idolaters. They whore after this, this ephod. And so just as his dad was an idolater, Gideon's one too and he calls the people to be idolaters. Keller says the judge is supposed to turn the people from unfaithfulness to the true God. Gideon leads them into unfaithfulness. Now that's the third reason. So financial money, crescents, ornaments, pendants. He wants the royalty things. He takes this place of this ephod, causing them to hoard after it, saying that he's got kind of the lifeline of inquiring to God. The fourth thing, which I think is the most compelling reason is this. If you look in chapter eight, verse 31, he has a son with a concubine who's from Shechem. So that's a Canaanite. That's not an Israelite. So he's breaking what was told him in Joshua. Don't have children with the Canaanites. What does he do? He has children with the Canaanites. And he bore a son and he named him Abimelech. You're like, okay, what does that mean? Abimelech literally means son of the king. That's what it means. So whenever he says he doesn't want to be a king, but he names his child son of the king, it makes me think you, you want to be a king or else you wouldn't have named your child son of the king. If you say, I don't, know, I don't ever want to be a grass cutter, but I name my son son of the grass cutter, then I'm calling myself the grass cutter. Like that's just, just what it is, right? Or son of the most cool. I'm, like, I'm not cool, but my name, son's name is son of the most cool. You think you're the most cool, right? And so here he names his son son of the king. So in four different ways, we see what his words say is God's going to be your, your ruler. And that is, a, that is a merciful gift that God gives in that particular moment to preserve Israel for a little bit of time where they don't have a human rule. Um, and that's the gift of God. But nevertheless, I don't think that's what's in Gideon's heart. I don't think that's what's in Gideon's heart because he does it immediately. He does things that look like he wants to be a king. Um, and so there became a snare. And then it says, Semitian was subdued by the people of Israel. They raised their heads no more. And it says in verse, the end of verse 28, they had, they had rest for 40 years. They had rest for 40 years. Now, when they have rest for 40 years, um, this isn't like the normal rest that they had experienced. Uh, one commentator says, because Gideon ended his life desiring to be worshipped instead of pointing people to worship God, this peace and rest that he brought was compromised peace. Tim Keller says, it's a peace without worship. It's a peace without obedience. So there was no oppression but there was no worship. There was no worship. And so the third thing we see here is this. He wants himself, not Jesus, to be the king of his own heart and the people. Meaning he wants, instead of having Jesus on the throne of his heart, he wants FUD on the throne of his heart. And not only does he want FUD on the throne of his heart, he wants FUD on the throne of everybody's heart. He wants everybody, including himself, to say, look, I'm awesome. That's the way he closes out his life. Now, obviously, take the name Fudd out and, and, and put in your name, right? Put in your name. You don't want your name on the throne of your heart or you don't want Jesus. You want you and you want everybody else to do that. That's what a downfall looks like. A downfall looks like you may in words say you don't want to be the king of your heart, but in actions, you want to be the king of your heart and you want everybody else to think that you're the king too and worship you and think you're awesome. That's what's happened. That's what a downfall looks like. And it should caution us that whenever we're this is so subtle and it can be so difficult to see. But as we're going through life, we don't just need to start out strong as worshipers and followers of Jesus. We need to end our lives as worshipers and followers of Jesus and not shift over to worshipers and followers of self and demand everybody do that. Because if they don't, what do you do? You become vindictive, just like him. You become a poor decision maker, just like him. And the last thing that you do is you leave a terrible legacy. 
That's the fourth thing. What does a downfall cause? What does a downfall bring about? Number four, you leave a terrible legacy for your children. Look at this. This is, this is horrible. Jerubal, the son of Joash, who lived in his own house. Now Gideon, that's the same guy, Jerubal and Gideon, the same person, had 70 sons. If you read that, it's on its own. Like, wow, that's, that's an amazing wife. For he had many wives. Bad. Bad. They knew you're only supposed to, even in this particular time, this early, the Lord God had already saw it, said, you are not supposed to be polygamists. This is not the way that Yahweh wants you to live your life. You should have one wife. And he also has a concubine that bore him a son named Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in an old age and buried in the tomb with Joash's father. And now watch, this is what happens. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. Not Yahweh, but fake, false, nothing gods. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of, of Gideon and all returned for the good he had done. Now he had done good, but he, because of the downfall, he brought about these things. So if you look at the depravity that he leaves, instead of a good legacy, he ends by having many wives. He ends by having a concubine and an illegitimate son. He ends by uh, the people who followed after him, whoring after idols after his death. And he ends by not having steadfast love shown to him, but instead the opposite. So he does not leave a good legacy behind. And so when we look at this, we should want to not have a downfall where the legacy is bad. So I would say for all of us then, if at the end of my life, you want to say, did Fudd pursue and follow Jesus his entire life? The best thing possibly would be, don't wait till I die and look at the life I lived. Wait till my children die and the life they lived. And then you'll have your answer. Because if I can't, if I can't leave a legacy for my own children to follow after Jesus, then I failed. I failed. And so... The fourth thing that a downfall brings is a terrible legacy that your children, as soon as you die, whore after idolatry. And so it's a caution for us all to think um, it matters, of course, big time that you persevere to the end. But it also matters that you live your life in such a way with your children that they persevere to the end. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but I am saying it matters how you live your life. And so Looking at Gideon's life, there's some applications we can make. Block, uh, the, the writer makes his last name's Block, makes these four quick applications. One, that if we've learned anything that happens positively in the people of God, even with us, it's by God's grace and God's grace alone. It's not because we've done something. It's because God was gracious and merciful to do it. The second thing, when God's on our side, no enemy is invincible. Our victory is sure, meaning the sin in your life that you think is devastating you, that you absolutely can't never defeat. If you're in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, it's not as strong as you think. Jesus is infinitely stronger, infinitely stronger. He defeated it at the cross and the Holy Spirit by his grace can defeat it in your life right now and you can be more sanctified. The third thing we see is that the greatest obstacle among God moving and working in the world is the faithlessness of his people. That's the greatest obstacle he faces. Therefore, let's finish well. Let's not be faithless people. Let's be faithful people. The fourth thing we can see is that when you're a leader, you will face constant temptation to exchange God's agenda for your own personal agenda. You'll exchange God's agenda for your own personal ambition. 
Don't make what you want the main thing. Always keep what God wants as the main thing. Now, those are the applications. Let's conclude with the good news. Let's conclude with the good news. As we look at Gideon, he is just a shadow of the reality. And the shadow is sinfully flawed. The reality, Jesus, is not. So, let's look at Christ. As Tim Keller says, how wonderful it is to look at Jesus uh, as, as a, the true judge and all these other judges as just shadows of Jesus. And how, unlike Gideon, Jesus had every right to demand service as king. Rightfully, he demanded service as king and didn't have every right. Jesus did because he lived a per- perfect life for us. Unlike Gideon, Jesus actually is the tabernacle that actually does have the direct line to God because of his, um, his, his willingness to be obedient to the cross. God did ultimately dwell on earth here in Christ. Yet Jesus resisted the temptation to rule over us in power and the nations because he didn't come in his first coming to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. For many. So in his first coming, he willingly came to serve all of us by giving his life as a ransom on the cross. Therefore, all of us now will receive life if we put our faith and trust him. We repent of our sin, trust that he died the death that we, did, that we should have died, and we will receive his righteousness. He's now our ransom. He has ransomed us from self-honoring reactions to success and self-hating responses to being failures. He's used his position as the son of God to give us freedom from needing respect or from being crushed by the lack of not getting respect. Unlike the ephod, here is the one to whom we should rightly come and worship. Israel in this particular afterwards hoard after the ephod. Instead, unlike that, Jesus is the one whom we should rightly come to and throw all of our worship and adoration towards. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the only real, true rescuer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love, that you are the good king that comes off your throne in order to save his people. Most earthly kings send people to do that, not you. You are the king that actually gets off your throne and comes down and willingly dies for his people. And you are just amazingly good to us. You deserve all the worship. Help us all, God, as we look at our lives, that our entire life, not just the beginnings, but our entire lives would be um, in the service of you, following after you, that you would uh, let us use the story of Gideon and especially in as a cautionary tale, I guess you could say, as a way to, to know that um, downfall is certainly possible for all and that we would persevere to the end, that we would take the lessons of this and that we would make Christ supreme in our hearts and not ourselves so that we would persevere to the end and that you would use us mightily to make a difference in our, in our uh, neighbors and our families and our coworkers' lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.